materialism just simply doesn't cover all the bases and we need a fuller, more integrated point of view and we're going to get one. You know, we can burn the fleet, but that doesn't mean exploration is going to stop. And so I do think in actuality we live in an exciting time. Welcome to the Art of Humanity. I'm your host, Jessica Ann. This is my podcast where you can listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and your favorite entrepreneurs. You can explore creativity and consciousness, evolve your business with the art of humanity. Now, here's this week's episode. Hi, I'm Jessica Ann, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Humanity. This podcast is my expression where I talk about things that are coming up for me personally and what I observe in the collective. I thought it would be fitting to start this episode with a quote by American philosopher William James. He wrote the book, Varieties of Religious Experience. He writes, the greatest revolution of our generation is the discovery that human beings, by changing their inner attitudes of their minds, can change the outer aspects of their lives. Often it's easy to not question why we do what we do or how we're wired. If you listened to episode 34 in season four with Dr. Loretta Bruning, we dissected how the major chemicals in our brains, like dopamine, oxytocin, and serotonin, not only work, but how they influence our beliefs. These chemicals frame our beliefs, which in turn creates our experiences, and these experiences shape our reality. For some of us, we have experiences that pierce through the static of the mundane. These phenomena are evidence alone for us to take seriously that we're connected to something larger. This larger something, whatever that is for you, reveals that the nature and the power of our thoughts proves to be far more consequential than we suppose. My friends, we are exploring these metaphysical questions today in the show in the most practical way. One of the ways that I ask these somewhat unanswerable questions are in my podcast. I use podcasting as part of my path to awakening, It's not only my expression, but my spiritual practice. With a journalism background, I've kind of gone rogue when I learned of the power of the pod. Some of you may know that I have a background in traditional media, working in news at NBC News Channel and Sirius XM Radio. But I really truly evolved when I saw how podcasting is replacing the talking head echo chamber of yesterday. Podcasting is one of the best ways to have meaningful conversations, gain confidence in speaking about your business, and grow your business. We can use podcasts as almost an incubator to test new ways that journalists and everyday humans can educate, entertain, and inspire through narrative. My guests jam about topics just like this in today's interview. When we look back at journalists like Hunter S. Thompson, who founded the Gonzo Journalism Movement, I predict that we'll look back in this moment in history to see the similarities as well as the differences. While I don't have a Hells Angel motorcycle gang quite yet, I'm recording interviews with historians and sharing firsthand accounts of this new shared reality, these new shared experiences in my own life and in the collective conscious. One of the benefits of hosting my own podcast is that I'm using these interviews as qualitative data and research for my next book. I self-published my last book, and after talking with multiple book authors like James Altucher and Seth Godin, I've decided to publish my next book with a publisher. So when a crowdfunding literary agency reached out to me to see if I wanted to pitch my next book idea, I could not say no. My next book is called Myth, Meaning, and Marketing, 
How the Emotion of Story Creates Our Reality. I'm writing this book because I wanted to peel back the layers of society and culture to deconstruct what it means to be human in a world now driven by technology and algorithms. I dissect the myth and meaning in detail to explore the deeper truths of society to reveal poignant insights. This allows my readers to carve out a niche in the busy marketplace and evolve their brand. My book is now available for pre-order on Publishizer. My goal is to get 1,000 pre-orders so that my next book can be fully represented by a publisher. To get the direct link, go to my Instagram or Twitter at beingishuman. The other benefit of podcasting is that it can bring in business. I've benefited immensely from hosting this podcast over the years, and I want to share with you how you can do the same. The first question most people ask me when I tell them that I have a podcast is, how do you make money? My new course answers this question because, let's be real, podcasts as simple vanity projects are a thing of the past. My partner, Jeremiah, and I will guide you through the steps to launch a successful podcast focused on monetization from day one. For current podcast creators, the Profitable Podcast course offers strategies to grow your audience and convert your fans into paying monthly subscribers. Using our proven tools and a weekly group call, we'll share how to actually profit from your podcast. Whether you're working at a PR, marketing, or advertising agency and have clients who want to make a profit from their podcast, or you want to host your own podcast, or you already host your own podcast, this profitable podcast course will feed each and every part of your business and even cover your rent or your mortgage. I like to explain it as the quantum school approach to building a successful podcast. Because not only will you learn how to make a profit, you'll also activate your human potential using the power of the spoken word and storytelling to generate cash flow and elevate your brand. If this interests you, please send me a DM on Instagram or Twitter at beingishuman. We can set up a call to see if you're right for this program. You can also email me at hello at artofhumanity.io. I'm so thrilled to keep seeing the reviews pop up on Apple Podcast. This review came in from Senthal in Orlando, Florida. After listening to these podcasts, I breathed free for the very first time in a long time, and I'm not exaggerating. I was thinking to myself, I am not alone, and there are others who value such a lifestyle, minimalism, renting versus owning a home, and who value their independence over social shackles, not taking on debt to impress social circles, and are in pursuit of the same. Keep up the excellent work you are doing, Jessica. Thank you so much for that review, Senthal. Now, let's get to today's show. Today's episode tackles new thought with nuance through an applied methodology, which my guest refers to as applied transcendentalism. In the late 19th century, a small group of esoteric seekers calling themselves the Miracle Club explored principles and techniques to affect reality through thought. My guest today is a writer on alternative spirituality and a new thought believer who explores the works of Ralph Waldo Emerson, William James, Neville Goddard, and others. His current findings in physics and his personal experiences create a convincing argument that having power over your mind really does work. My guest today is Mitch Horowitz, and he affirms that every human being has the innate ability to bend reality toward a particular result, and that we are always using this power for good or for ill, whether we are aware of it or not. He provides understanding, exercises, and tools to make our visualizations, affirmations, and prayers effective. But there's a caveat, just like in the Jeff Brown episode last week, where Brown cautions over the quote-unquote light and love and fake positivity movement, Mitch is in a similar boat. 
These positive thinking movements are sometimes criticized by some for claiming that the mind can actually affect reality, and for others, it suggests that faulty thinking is the cause of personal tragedies. However, my guest today explains new thought, values, and methods to reveal what they really teach and tackles the movement's failure to develop a much-needed theology. In this interview, we discuss how to use our senses as data, how to experiment with beliefs using everyday reality, how the participatory style of journalism and the earnestness of the observer can be practical yet exploratory. We also discuss what it means to hypnagogically program yourself, why experimentation is the best yielder of truth. To get all of the show notes and links, go to artofhumanity.io. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the Art of Humanity, where we explore creativity and consciousness with artists, leaders, authors, and entrepreneurs. Today, I'm so thrilled to have with me Mitch Horowitz. Mitch Horowitz is a writer-in-residence at the New York Public Library, a lecturer-in-residence at the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, and the Penn Award-winning author of books including Occult America, One Simple Idea, and The Miracle Club, How Thoughts Become Reality. Mitch has written on everything from The War on Witches to The Secret Life of Ronald Reagan for The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, Salon, Time, and Politico. The Washington Post says Mitch treats esoteric ideas and movements with an even-handed intellectual studiousness that's often too lost in today's raised-voice discussions. Mitch has discussed alternative spirituality on CBS Sunday Morning, Dateline NBC, NPR's All Things Considered, CNN, and throughout the national media. He received the 2019 Walden Award for Interfaith Intercultural Understanding, and the Chinese government has censored his work. <laughs> Mitch. Thank you so much for joining me on The Art of Humanity. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Mitch, this season is all about consciousness, and I have the utmost respect and fascination by new thought leaders like you, who are evolving at the rate of new research and then writing about it. You tackle new thought with nuance and through an applied methodology. I like to call this experiential living. You refer to it as applied transcendentalism in your book. And I love talking to people about this. I interviewed Eric Davis in episode 44, and it's so clear that we've evolved past all of that new age hype. You know, we can see through the secret. We've grown tired of the hippie illusions. And then we come to a middle ground. There's academia on one end of the spectrum, and then there's the lack of critical thinking on the other. But Mitch, you seem to have bridged the gap with the concept and most importantly, the application of new thought. So, Mitch, first, I want to thank you for your work in the world. It's people like you who are defying, quote unquote, logic and bringing it into the fabric of our culture that really lights me up. And it keeps me hip to the notion that nothing is as it seems Mm -hmm. in a way that has a rich dynamic framework. We're meant to experience life with an intensity and awareness that wasn't available throughout history, or if it was, it was frowned upon. So we have the opportunity today to kind of throw out all of our assumptions and experiments. And it seems kind of crazy, but these ideas are pretty radical and innovative in American spirituality and psychology and what you call a genuine and still unfolding reformation of the modern search for meaning. There's a reason why your work is censored in China. (laughs) (laughs) I've been told that, yes. (laughs) Yeah. So you believe that in order to be happy, you know, we must exercise our fullest range of abilities, including the assertions of outer achievement. And your work documents this in ways. One of the most important chapters of your book, it documents how to tap into the power of one deeply felt wish, which is the crux of your work. 
So why is there such a disconnect with the metaphysical possibilities? You know, it seems so simple when we read it and then we experiment with it and apply the transcendentalism of it all. But how do you exist kind of between both worlds? That's a wonderful question. We experience many different laws and forces. And I think one of the problems that the secret or certain popularizations of new thought have in sustaining the attention of mature people is that kind of paradigm puts forth one mental super law, what you might call the law of attraction. And there's this notion that everything we experience is subjected to the law of consciousness. That may be true at some ultimate level. That's sort of a macro conversation that it's worth having. And I believe that there is truth to that. But in terms of our day-to-day lives, we as five sensory beings have to exist under the experience of multiple laws and forces. So the manner in which thoughts become causative or thoughts create concrete outer impacts in our lives is sometimes very subtle. And sometimes things occur that are quite real, but they're not necessarily repeatable in some automatic way. I work very carefully with trying to figure out, both in terms of testimony and in terms of work that's being done in the hard sciences, where we can kind of pick up a signal in the noise, where we can detect thought actually outpicturing in a very direct way, in a very real way in someone's life. And it falls to each of us to experiment with that. And these experiments are necessarily going to have some subjectivity to them. But I also believe strongly that mature people are not bereft of perspective, that there are times in life where we can think something and maybe there's a gestation period and something unfolds in our life that has an uncanny congruency between our emotionalized thoughts and mental pictures and some outpicturing. And it does begin to beg questions about the extent to which our thoughts are causative, our thoughts are determinative. And then we see all kinds of things in the sciences that are deeply more suggestive of the impact of thought than what we understood even 25 years ago. Like in the field of neuroplasticity, for example, brain scans will show thoughts, sustained thoughts, actually altering brain chemistry, actually changing the neural pathways in which electrical impulses happen in the brain. It's literally mind over matter. And no one contests the data, but very few people are willing to follow the implications of the data. So our generation is really faced with an incredible set of new questions and new possibilities about the extent to which our thoughts influence reality, a way that goes beyond cognition and motor skills and so on. And this is one of the most tantalizing, extraordinary questions we as a generation face, but it won't yield itself to extremes. It won't yield itself to total credulity of deciding that everything that goes on around me is going to have a very neat, clear cause and effect connection to my thoughts, nor will it reveal itself through a kind of materialist rejectionism, insisting that we don't have any evidence of any kind of non-localized intelligence. We have lots of evidence, and lots of it really stands up extraordinarily well. And taking an attitude that I'm not going to accept it, I'm not going to look through Galileo's telescope, because 
it's contradictory of what came before. That's a different kind of credulity. That's a different kind of, of orthodoxy. And orthodoxies don't yield truths. Experiment yields truths. So what I'm trying to do in my book, The Miracle Club, and in other places is encourage a personal experiment. I love it. I love your book, The Miracle Club. You know, it just really brings to light this notion that our senses are meant to be used as data and as experiments. Um, you know, it's that nonlinear side of life that we are meant to experiment and have fun with. Yes. And, you know, that's the definition, I guess, of new thought. It rejects materialism as the foundation of life and sees reality based. In spiritual rather than physical laws, because let's face it, the materialists omit a large chunk of what it means to be a human. Yes, and I think that's so important. You know, materialism no longer covers all the bases of life in the 21st century. It just, it simply doesn't stand up. It doesn't stand up to quantum theory. It doesn't stand up to neuroplasticity. It doesn't stand up to the serious work that has been done in psychical research over the past 80 years, which many materialists deny is a real science. They will reject parapsychological findings on the face of it. But these findings can be deterred, but they can't be ignored. They can't be written off uh, the, the scientific ledger. Because for the past 80 years or so, there has been serious scholarly psychical research going on in America and elsewhere that shows people gleaning information in laboratory settings in anomalous ways, just people gaining access to some form of information in a manner that doesn't obey the rules of the five senses. And it's going to become as impossible, I think, in our generation to write off that research as it has become to just completely write off UFOs, for example. No serious person today, given the videos and radar images that have been released from the military can just write off the UFO question as, you know, a bunch of flying saucer nonsense, you know, the equivalent of unicorns. One can mm -hmm. dispute it, debate it, consider it, worry about it, minimize it, but you can't write it off. It's just not an intellectually tenable position. It's there, it exists. Likewise with psychical research. And I think things, I hesitate using phrases like things are opening up because I don't have all that much faith in humanity. And it's not as if I walk around persuading myself that things are going to, we're perched on some intellectual renaissance in the esoteric. I don't think that, I don't say that lightly. I don't use that as a turn of a phrase, but I really do believe that there is a certain state of flux in our intellectual culture now, and there's more openness, for example, because there has to be to the UFO thesis than there was even six months ago. And there's material data there that can't be ignored, even if one differs on the implications of it. Same thing is true with the non-locality of thought. There's so much data that one can disagree about the implications, but we're almost at a point, we're not quite there yet, but we're almost at a point where that question can't be intelligently shut down. I embrace that. I embrace that. I think materialism just simply doesn't cover all the bases. And we need a fuller, more integrated point of view. And we're going to get one. You know, we can burn the fleet, but that doesn't mean exploration is going to stop. And so I do think in actuality, we live in an exciting time. Absolutely. These non-physical connections are being measured and documented by researchers like Dean Radin today. And it's up to us to be like, wow, this is new research, like the Galileo and his telescope. You can't avoid the fact that we have the ability to look through the lens of a telescope and see something that we didn't have the ability to do just a few decades ago. 
So when we look back in history, the philosophers of the Enlightenment worked to insulate human free will from reductionism. And, you know, do you find that we're in a similar place today? And where are we heading when it comes to kind of the idea that you said you don't want to be too overwhelmed at the joy and the freedom of kind of just going based on where all this research is taking us. But at the same time, like we are at the forefront. We are like, you're the pioneer. You're writing about this. We're at the forefront of the next paradigm in our evolution. So where are we exactly? You know, if we can take like a little dot and mark our GPS in history, like are we at the very beginning of just beginning to understand where we are in this multifaceted, multidimensional universe? I think there is a turning point occurring. And the turning point, in a certain sense, may return us to that place of experimentation that the culture found itself entering in, say, the early to mid-60s, which was probably the last time that there was a renaissance of psychical research going on in our country, for example. Although that's just one example among others. People were beginning to experiment more transparently with psychedelics. There were new psychologies being minted. People were becoming interested in countergroup therapy and all kinds of mind-body modalities. And a lot of this stuff became popular, but kind of lost intellectual credence, partly because of uh, just the narrow cultural debates that go on in our country. And I would say we probably lost about a generation of solid research into ESP or psychical abilities on college campuses, partly as a reaction against that opening. But I think that the opening is occurring again, you know, as I was alluding. And the important thing is that we who consider ourselves seekers not get irrationally exuberant or sort of cherry pick from ideas that seem to confirm our most cherished notions. There's still so much complexity behind every problem that we approach. I mean, for example, in the Miracle Club, I write about the research of a wonderful Australian psychiatrist named Ainsley Mears. And Mears, who died in 1986, produced some really extraordinary and very sober literature about the spontaneous remission of terminal cases of cancer and the degree to which this was tied to an intensive meditation program that he had been experimenting with or other intensive meditation programs. And he approached an extremely delicate topic, a topic that he and others who approach it should be determined never to flatten out into some sort of caricature or give people false hope. I feel very, very strongly about that. But Mears found that as he experimented with people who displayed spontaneous remission of cancer, he found about a 10% a correlation between cases of spontaneous remission and intensive meditation. So there was some sort of interruption in the expected fatality of the disease in 10% of cases where people were engaged in intensive forms of meditation. So that's a very small number, but it's not a statistically insignificant number. And the fact that spontaneous cases of remission exist at all is a remarkable question. I don't mean to suggest that spontaneous remission is tied to mental causation, for example. It could be tied to any number of things, but mental causation has to be considered uh, in the mix. There are about 15 such cases on the books 
in the United States alone each year. And the reason Ainsley Mears is kind of a hero to me is because he was one of the very few people who experimented in this admittedly very controversial area. And he published his findings in mainstream peer-reviewed medical journals. Sometimes people have these kinds of findings, and they might be valid, but they don't keep adequate records. Mears was meticulous about record keeping. And I write about him in the Miracle Club because I feel he's a good role model. He's somebody who asked extremely tough questions, extremely sensitive questions, and he did so with a great degree of sobriety and an insistence on not creating false hope or sensationalistic conclusions. But he did find that there was some small but persistent correlation between intensive meditation and remission of terminal diagnoses among people who were no longer receiving any kind of treatment. They were basically in a hospice-type situation. So that's the kind of research that I want to see happening again in our time, the kind of research that isn't just conducted on the New Age, within the New Age subculture or within isolated environs where everybody agrees with one another, but conducted very transparently with good record-keeping out in the open. And that can begin to give us a sense of possibility of what our minds are actually capable of without selling out to sensationalism. And it's funny, before my book, The Miracle Club, was published, I had published a small piece of the book in a magazine. It was an article about Ainsley Mears. And I posted the article on Facebook. And a couple of my followers on Facebook objected very deeply to the posting of the article. And they felt that it was a typical example of the New Age culture giving people false hope, proffering miraculous cures that weren't supported by facts. And when I confronted at least one of the two people who had objected to the piece, he acknowledged to me that he hadn't read it. And this is the kind of thinking we have to get away from, because we all have these scripts running in our heads. And one of those scripts says, you must never give false hope to people who are suffering from these chronic illnesses. And I, I agree with that principle, but I agree with it as a principle, not as a script. And what I've written about Mears and what I think he tried to embody in his own career was just a, a model of meticulous behavior, responsible behavior in connection with remarkable questions. And it's that kind of behavior that I think is going to kind of move the ball down the field for us in this generation. We have to get out of our tribes. We have to get out of our scripts and not rely on any kind of catechism, whether religious or materialistic, but really question and really experiment and, and do so well. Absolutely. Yeah, I see both sides to that because there is a certain type of safety and truth that comes from logic and the dissolution of the facts and the research and the studies you know, can be alarming for people. But at the same time, if we don't go down these rabbit holes and explore, then we're not going to really find any new information. And what I always submit to people is that you don't determine seriousness based upon subject matter. You determine seriousness based upon the meticulousness and the excellence that you bring to the subject matter. So if somebody's interested in a topic that falls outside of the circle of what's usually considered serious, the judgment shouldn't come from whether that person is considered to be pursuing something 
off the rails or not, but whether or not he or she is bringing excellence uh, to the pursuit. I mean, that's not to say I don't have ground rules. I mean, certainly I do have some ground rules. I don't believe in ideas that intrinsically debase or dehumanize another person or another community. I mean, obviously, there are ethical parameters to what I think makes for good study. But by and large, by and large, I think seriousness comes from your approach, uh, not from your topic. And that, too, can become a crutch. You know, sometimes we choose topics. We do it all the time in academia and in journalism. We choose topics that are safe. And uh, it's a good career path. It's also bad seeking, you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then some seekers will, you know, they'll go to the opposite extreme and they'll defend or get all excited about an outrageous thesis that they possess no evidence for at all. You know, it's all just mm-hmm. sheer conjecture. But and it's it sounds confirmation really cool. bias. Yes. And it sounds cool, but uh, but they have no connective tissue. I mean, no evidence, whatever. And uh, there's a better way to go. There's just a better way to go. Totally. And anyone can do it. That's what blows my mind is you're talking about good record keeping. And, and at first when you're saying that, it's kind of like, oh, well, I'm not in academia. I don't have a foot in the door to do a journal, a peer-reviewed journal. But at the same time, as much as credibility as that can bring to the conversation, we can keep our own data. We can keep our own record keeping. Is that correct? So kind of you can experiment. And if you're really good at record keeping and the quantified self way of living, you can experiment based on the realities that you encounter in everyday life. Absolutely. And although I'm, I'm certainly not a clinician of any kind, I write as a historian, I try to be meticulous in terms of my historicism. My books, at least those that deal with historical subject matter, they have notes and references. And I welcome people looking at some of the academic papers or studies that I'm referencing. You know, For example, in the Miracle Club, anytime I make reference to a mind-body study or a piece of psychical research or what have you, I always provide reference material so that the individual, him or herself, can go take a look and you know hold me to it. Call me out if I'm simplifying this stuff in any kind of inaccurate way or if I'm exaggerating anything. Uh, I believe we can all bring excellence to what we do. And I, I try to do that with my historicism. I hesitate to call myself a journalist because I'm as much a participant in these movements as I am a chronicler. But I hope that doesn't detract from the documentation and the sobriety that I try to bring to that documentation. So I want people to be able to follow the dots and be sure, as they should be, that neither I nor anybody else is is exaggerating anything. Absolutely. And I think that what you just said right there, you're not a journalist, you're a participant in the movements. I think that is the modern day journalist. I think that is (laughs) what defines the gonzo-based journalism today, the Hunter S. Thompson, you know, we're, we're living it, we're breathing it, we're reporting on it, and then we're showing the rest of humanity kind of what we're finding. <laughs> Do you agree? You've inspired me because I was just talking to a friend a couple of days ago about Hunter Thompson, and his brilliance was that, you know, he might travel somewhere with the intention of covering a sports event and he might not leave the hotel pool, but somehow in his genius, he would capture more about the event and the culture surrounding it than any journalist who observed every frame and movement of the game you might have come away with. That was, of course, his individual <laughs> genius. But 
I do think that participatory style of journalism can be incredibly revealing based upon the earnestness of the observer. I've seen journalists go into participatory situations with such calcified attitudes that they've already determined, they've at least written the headline in their mind, if not the story, before getting to the location. And who knows, maybe I'm guilty of that sometimes myself. I mean, we all have our prejudices. But I do think that it's almost impossible to fully cover a religious movement, for example, unless you have some appreciation of the values and the motives that emanate from within that movement, which is why almost all historians who write about religion, although they wouldn't classify themselves this way, they are believing historians. You know, many of the historical works that have been written about both mainstream and alternative faiths have been written by scholars who come from within those congregations themselves. And if you watch for that, you'll notice it more and more. So calling myself a believing historian, I think is just being frank. Most historians are in one way or another. And many of our religious histories of movements like, I mean, really widely recognized religious histories of movements like Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, Christian science, those are the so-called new religious movements, but also more traditional movements, more ancient movements like Catholicism, various strands of Judaism. They get written by people from within those worlds themselves. That shouldn't be a disqualifier, just helps them to understand the values and ideas that are emergent from the tradition more, and also helps them see some of the contradictions, the problems, makes them better critics depending on, on how sober they're willing to to peer through the looking glass. So I try to be upfront with people about the position that I'm coming from. That's great. I mean, it just says so much about your work. All we have is what we experience. You know, I feel like the older paradigm, kind of the reductionist paradigm kind of just goes based on facts and logic in the brain without actually experiencing it. But now we're moving into a new paradigm where, you know, we have to see it to believe it. <laughs> yes. you know, we have to experience it, to <laughs> whether it's seeing it with our real eyes or whether it's, you know, feeling into a story like Hunter S. Thompson before it actually happened and then writing about it from another dimension almost. It's, it's real, you know? I totally agree. And I think people should have strong empirical standards, and I think they should apply those standards, frankly, to religion and spirituality and therapy. Any therapeutic or ethical or spiritual philosophy that's not making a concrete difference for the better in your life, either in terms of conduct or in terms of your relationships, I don't think it should have a claim on you. I think it's very fair for people to be practical, and I applaud that in religion. That puts me at opposite odds with some people within the alternative spiritual scene, you know, but mine is a philosophy of results. And I think the individual is entitled to actually have expectations and determinations about those results. I don't think you should stick with any ethical or religious philosophy that doesn't make itself felt in really describable concrete ways in your life. Absolutely. And yeah, when I was talking with Eric Davis about this in episode 44, he uses uncertainty as a tool for embodiment. And I think a lot of people get lost in this process of kind of seeing uncertainty as an ungrounded way to move through the world. But for me personally, I love it. Like I love just being so embodied in the possibility of ideas that they take on a life and a force of their own. 
Yes. And it's the only thing that sustains inquiry. I mean, we're all guilty of, we all have our prejudices. And sometimes these prejudices can be positive. You know, the cancer researcher wants to get someplace. He or she wants to cure cancer. And there's obviously a wish or a hunch or an instinct that they're going down the right road. And we all have that. But without pure inquiry, we all just become figures who are calcifying a, a catechism or a dogma or a doctrine. It's really dangerous and it can really creep up on us because there's lots of people who think of themselves as dedicated to pure logic, for example, but they're human. And within their devotion to pure logic, there are iron-bound laws and conclusions that they'll never question. And that closes people off terribly. I hope, I hope that my search changes and sometimes changes dramatically because I'm willing to ask myself questions. I, I'm willing to admit failure. There are certain paths, certain ideas that haven't panned out for me. There are others that have sprung beautiful fruit. So I, I start digging more and I may return you know, to something that I've written off as a failure to find that there may be fruit there that I've misunderstood or it may be helpful for somebody else. But I never want to feel myself reciting, you know, and I feel that's a huge pitfall for anybody who's dealing with ethical or spiritual philosophies. In fact, I'm sure you as an interviewer have experienced that with guests from time to time where you're talking to somebody and you're like, this person is giving me sound bites or this person is reciting. I can mm -hmm. always pick it up and it's a huge drag because you're not getting authenticity. For sure. And I think that speaks to where we're at as a society, you know, reductionism and the logical path is, you know, one of the most used and abused ways of living and terms in the philosophical lexicon. So, you know, at the same time, you do want to have, quote unquote, sound bites sometimes. You want to have something sturdy to fall back on when your mind goes blank. <laughs> but we also have to watch out for that because it shuts down our ability to be in the moment, to really be present and to, from that presence, from there, that access point, then you can question things. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I had, uh, I taped two episodes of a streaming television show called One Simple Idea. And in that show, which was on a channel called the New Thought Channel, now I think all the episodes, they may be up on YouTube. That show involved me interviewing different leaders within the New Age, New Thought world. And with the exception of a few episodes, I was unsatisfied with it because I felt like even some very famous people I was interviewing were giving me catechism, you know, essentially. I didn't feel they were revealing their real work. I didn't feel they were revealing their struggles. And it may have been due to my shortcomings as an interviewer, you know, to some extent. But I really do believe that if we ever get to a point where we hear ourselves reciting, there's trouble. You know, there's trouble. Our search is... is at least as something that we're willing to publicly explore, is probably winding down. You know, because I think daily we have to try to ask ourselves, am I right about this? And this can be true for a person on the sciences as much as for someone in spirituality. The uncertainty principle that you were describing, it's it's really vital. It's really vital to sustaining intellectual life. So how can listeners who may be on that certainty path and logical and just going through the motions of everyday life who may be listening to this and think it's way far out there. Like what is like one step or thought or technique that they can implement that might start to awaken a new way of approaching life that might be more expansive or 
just different than going through the mechanical motions. Sure. Well, what I would ask that person, and I ask this with a real depth of seriousness, what do you want in life? What do you genuinely, genuinely want in life? And you should be willing to approach that question with, first of all, with privacy, because it's not something you have to share with anybody else. I don't want peer pressure or the wish for pure approval to limit another person's sense of himself any more than I wanted to limit my sense of myself. And I would invite an individual to sit down in a really private, disinhibited, unembarrassed way and ask, what do I want out of life? Because that's one of these questions that we think we ask ourselves all the time. And we have a very unfortunately rehearsed retinue of answers that run through our heads. But if you strip yourself of all inhibition and you allow yourself to feel reassured that once you come to a blunt answer, you don't have to run out and share it with your shrink or your spouse, your boyfriend or girlfriend or your neighbor or whatever. You're not asking for anybody's approbation. It's just a pure mental experiment that's yours alone. And you ask, what do you want out of life? You may be very surprised. You know, sometimes somebody who's an intense go-getter may just want to live alone, may just want things to be quiet. Sometimes somebody who's labored to support the work of others may realize that he or she wants to be in the spotlight. There could be all kinds of possibilities, or you could find that you're doing exactly what you ought to be doing. But whatever the case may be, ask yourself that question. Ask yourself, what do I really want in life? Because I think nothing harnesses our forces better, our full complement of forces as human beings, psychological, emotional, intellectual, psychical, if I may, than one definite absolute focus. But our energies are very often dispersed. Uh, life conspires to disperse our energies. We get pulled in a lot of different directions at once, whether we want to or not. And sometimes we do that to ourselves. But regardless, if you can ask yourself that question with a really sustained maturity, there's almost always a surprise tucked away in there. And once you get surprised, you may start asking yourself other questions as well. It starts to unravel some of the uncertainty. Plus, you will enjoy it because when you think you've already asked yourself, what do I want in life, and you discover that question holds something new for you, it can be a remarkable experience. Mm. You talk about the hypnagogic state in your book and you know how we can experiment in this hypnagogic state. And it's almost, you know, as you're asking this out loud, it's like a cry for the universe to be like, how can I give, how can I be of service to the world? And how can I, at the same time, you want to do what's, you know, best for you. So it can kind of be a little bit of a hedonistic <laughs> approach to it. So how do you kind of balance the difference between, you know, being of service to the world and knowing that you have a lot to offer versus that hedonistic tendency to ask the universe for giving you exactly what you want? without respect for the greater good of the world? Well, that's a wonderful, wonderful question. And I appreciate that question because, you know, to be honest, I don't really think in terms of service. I think service is one of those words that has become kind of a trope within the new age culture, within the alternative spiritual culture. I think a lot of the time we almost feel like in order to sanitize our wishes, our desires, we have to process it through the prism of service so it doesn't seem, as you were saying, like hedonism. At the same time, one could ask then, you know, based on what I've just said, well, gee, how is your life's philosophy any different from hedonism? And I would say 
and I don't know that I have a problem with a principled hedonism, but it's not my path. I suppose I would say that I really do have a sense of ethical reciprocity in our world. You might call it karma. You might call it cosmic reciprocity. I absolutely believe with all my heart that there is a oneness to life and that what I enact in other people's lives is going to be enacted in my own just because of the ultimateness of that oneness. And I suppose I would never want to do anything to impede another person's own search for self-development any more than I would want that done to me. And I do think that there's a symbiosis with everyone around us. So if I'm gossiping about somebody, and I'm really down on gossip, if I'm trash-talking somebody, I've failed. And I can feel almost this energetic drop, so to speak. And I can feel what I'm talking about kind of enacting itself in my own life. At the same time, with regard to service, you know, is there a place for it? I mean, that's a tough question for me because in one sense, it's not a primary drive in my life. My assumption is if I'm doing a good job, if I'm opening possibilities to people, I suppose that the end user of that good job that I hope I'm doing, the end user of an idea that I hope is constructive, uh, receives some kind of service. I do find that if I'm in the presence of people whom I admire, service comes more naturally because I suppose I want to aid and assist that person in doing what he or she wants to do in the world. I suppose I view that person as somebody who's contributing something positive to the world and I, I want to help them. So I suppose I think more in terms of solidarity, loyalty, meticulousness than I do service. Although maybe I have an ethical question to face there because I also don't believe in leaving people to their own devices. And there are people in this world who suffer. I don't wish to perpetuate that suffering. I wish to see that suffering alleviated. I, I suppose I often beg off to political entities to do that. And uh, I don't know, you know, I, I might have an ethical question to face in that regard. In all honesty, I don't personally think in terms of service with regard to my search. And I actually think that the term service has become something of a trope within New Age culture, within alternative spiritual culture. I think often, if you really peel away the layers, it's used with some degree of hypocrisy, in many cases at least, where people want to couch what they're doing in terms of service so they can kind of sanitize whatever their wishes are. People are walking around with all these different wishes for things that they want to achieve, things that they want to bring into their lives, or the personal agency to enact certain things in life. And they couch these things, I believe, in terms of service as a way of sidestepping the possibility of seeming selfish or, or hedonistic. And then you, one could ask, apropos of that, well, then is my approach one of hedonism? And I don't really have any problem with a kind of principled or evolved hedonism, although that's not my path. My path involves a sense of cosmic or personal or reciprocity. One could call it karma. I do believe that life is interconnected. I do believe that life is one whole. I do believe that what I enact in the life of another person is enacted in my own life. I think that there is a, a point of convergence in people's existence. I don't fully understand it, but it's been my strong sensibility. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I'm deeply opposed to gossip. I'm deeply opposed to trash talking. And when I engage in it, 
I feel a depleted energy in my own life. I feel almost like the things I'm talking about in terms of another person are being reenacted within me. So I do think in terms of a real ultimate uh, reciprocity in life, and I do feel that I should never do anything to disrupt another person's self-development in the same way that I would wish they would never do anything that would disrupt mine. And in that regard, I believe very strongly in not violating the sanctity of another person's search, another person's life. So I don't know that that could exactly be called hedonism because I do believe in reciprocity. But I also do believe in a, a spirituality or philosophy of aspiration. I do believe the individual will not be truly happy unless he or she is progressively moving towards some sense of self-expression, whatever that may be, whether it's financial, physical, relational, artistic, whatever it may be. And I think that contemporary New Age culture, spiritual culture can kind of tie people in knots because on one hand, we're told to think in terms of service, in terms of non-identification, and I don't think in those terms. And on the other hand, we're filled with an instinct for aspiration, generativity, and creativity, which I honor. And I don't think the person can be, I don't think the individual can ultimately be happy without that. So I think we sometimes get into these situations where we're being pulled in different directions at once, or we're being tugged in, in different ways at once. Hence, my side of the street tends to be an aspirational side of the street, not ethically free, not ethically at liberty to do whatever you want, because I do believe in reciprocity. But I do believe that we are at our peak as individuals when we're being generative, being productive, being creative, being seeking self-expression and seeking the power, the ethical power to carry out with a sense of personal agency what we want in life. So where that leaves me in terms of service is a question because if I admire somebody, I do want to be of service in that person's life because I feel like whatever that person is striving to give birth to is something constructive and valuable. When I don't admire somebody, the question of service really goes out the window. And at the same time, I don't entirely believe societally in just leaving people to their own devices. I don't want people to suffer. And I do think there should be some very serious relief of that suffering, although I've often deferred to political institutions to do that, which may place me in front of question of whether I owe anything to service and whether I've been shirking that. I don't know, but that is a question. It's such a delicate dance, yeah. <laughs> this work, because, you know, there's always these little nuances to every experience that we have that can be kind of put into one basket or another, depending on the view. Yes. <laughs> it's just so tricky. I mean, I love that you frame it as like a cosmic reciprocity and karma. Karma is the name of my dog. So, of oh. course, I'm done with that. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of this delicate dance of uh reciprocity. And, you know, when you're mentioning, you know, you don't want to be around gossip or any of the toxic environments that make up a lot of today. And this is a question that, you know, I'm asking myself too. I'm not just posing it back to you is, is that because we like our nervous system, I think the deeper work in this world and in the new paradigm that we're entering is this restructuring of our nervous systems. Mm, yeah. And we're recalibrating ourselves so that we cannot take in that toxicity anymore. Mm -hmm. So of course I'm like you and I frame it as like, I can't be around small talk. I can't be around toxic environments because it brings me down. Brilliant. That is <laughs> such a great insight. Brilliant. 
And a lot of times I'm kind of balancing it with is that spiritual bypassing. You know, Jeff Brown talks about the fact that a lot of seekers are spiritually bypassing because they don't want to be in the world. Mm. So it's like so tricky, this world that we're living in, because it's like it could be framed any which way, depending on how we view it and which rabbit hole we want to go down that day. I think that the individual, above all else, owes something to his or her own sense of creativity, self-development, generativity, and frankly, sense of personal power. Again, I don't refer to any of those things without a sense of, of reciprocity, but I think that if you're in an environment, whether one of small talk, which I applaud you for pointing out, or one of incessant negativity, or an environment that just is bereft of any kind of beauty for you, my heartfelt advice, if I were asked it, would be to get out as quickly as possible, as quickly as possible. Let someone else worry about it. If you're wrong, you're wrong. I mean, we're always facing challenges where there's always going to be a consequence. I mean, if your spiritual path is to put yourself around your obnoxious Uncle Mike, you know, try it and come back and tell me what happens. But <laughs> quite frankly, I would let somebody else know. Do totally. that. <laughs> they can gather that data. You gather the data of like a you know a path of a personal fortification. <laughs> you know, see how it works. I mean, we're all just experimenters. Yeah, and it's all about making sense of it too as we go. Sometimes what got you to one place doesn't mean you have to stay there. So it's literally just exploring from moment to moment. That's true. You know, yeah. You allude to this in in your book. You reference a, an apartment in New York City that you looked at when you were in your 20s and then you yeah. recently came across. And it's funny as you're telling the story because I experience moments like this pretty often. So how do we make sense of this type of reality? I mean, it's all for our own interpretation because we're all, we all have the autonomy of our own lives. But I'm curious kind of how do you interpret these experiences that happen? Like for instance, the place I'm living in now, I literally meditated it into existence and I exactly the exact place, like floor to ceiling windows, overlooking the water, direct sunlight throughout the day. And it was, it came to me in a meditation and now I'm living here. (laughs) That's wonderful. So how do you like make sense of this in a way that I don't want to use the word is of service, but without seeming like hedonistic and kind of exploring, but with an open mind and an awareness that we want to be doing something that benefits others? Yes. Well, I think that First of all, if we're engaged in something that's genuinely constructive and it's meticulous, I think our work almost as a given of life benefits the other individual. Although I also think that one has to remember that constructiveness and productivity and generativeness, I don't think can be created in any sustained way by walking across the skulls of other people. Then I think that does lock us into a kind of circuitry of abuse in a certain way, which I don't think ultimately results in in happiness for anybody. I do believe that what you were describing about meditating an apartment into your life is very real. And I would encourage people to scrutinize their lives very carefully because sometimes there can be intervals of many years between a certain deeply, highly charged emotional thought and the actualization of that. And sometimes there can be an amazing symmetry between things that you're experiencing today and things that you thought about maybe when you were very young. And the spirit, the, the symmetry, if you can come face to face with it, is just uncanny. There's a popular expression in the culture 
careful what you wish for, you just might get it. And the actual origins of that expression come from the work of the philosopher Goethe, who put it a little differently. Goethe said, in effect, what we wish for when we are very young will come upon us in waves when we are old. So be careful. And that's the kind of observation that a lot of people might want to argue with. But I submit to people that if you try in a really honest, self-scrutinizing way to look at what you were wishing for when you first entered cognition, when you first started minting long-term memories, memories that could be accessed, say, even from age three or four, you might be amazed to find a symmetry between your life at some later stage and what you were thinking about when you were a kid. Again, it's it's one of these things that we think we do all the time because we engage in so much morbid self-reflection, but uh, sometimes we're not as self-reflecting as we think. And if we really give ourselves a chance to just privately look back on what some of our earliest memories or dreams were, sometimes even literal dreams, and what's going on in our lives today, we might find a really uncanny symmetry. So I don't necessarily know that that symmetry will always reveal good or bad. There might be, and certainly there are other intervening factors. There are other forces that enter our lives, physical limitations and things of that nature. I always want to take note of that. I don't think that the name of the game is just one mental super law, but I do think that there's an uncanny congruity uh, between thought and experience. Apropos of, you know, you're picturing your apartment, the apartment that you referenced in my life is one that I'm sitting in right now. And (laughs) it's very close in nature to something I let go when I was 22. And so one can find these congruities and it just puts you in front of a lot of questions. Absolutely. Yeah, I got full body chills when you mentioned that Gurdjieff's quote because it's so true how, you know, you can set into motion your life, you know, based on what you wanted when you were a kid, when you were age two or three. Amen. We're living and breathing it as we go. And it's just so such an honor to talk with you. You know, you've just done such tremendous amount of research in this world. And, you know, I applaud you for all of your work. Excited for your forthcoming projects. Where can people find some of your writing and work in the world? Well, my website is MitchHorowitz.com. If you just throw my name into Google, you'll find me. My email is there, lots of links to videos and articles and different projects. Lots of books and lectures, audiobooks, digital books, print books are available on Amazon and elsewhere. You can follow me on Twitter at Mitch Horowitz. I recently reached my friend limit on Facebook, so I'm not able to extend that invitation, unfortunately. But I post quite a bit on Twitter, and it's a great way to keep up with talks and lectures and articles and other things. And I'm always happy to hear from people. So if you happen upon my site and want to drop me a note, you'll hear back from me. Thank you so much for joining me, Mitch. Pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You made it to the end of this podcast. This means the world to me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Feel free to hop on over to my podcast website, artofhumanity.io, for show notes or past interviews. You can also message me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Jessica Ann, and my handle is beingishuman. That's B-E-I-N-G-I-S-H-U-M-A-N. I'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you've enjoyed from this episode. If you really love this podcast, I'd highly appreciate it if you went on Apple Podcasts right now and left a review. It helps way more than you know. You can also share this episode with two of your friends who you think would enjoy it. Let's get the Art of Humanity movement going. Thank you for listening. 
Until the next episode, evolve your business with the art of humanity. Listen, explore, evolve.